WBZ original. Well, then there was the night on the talk in the talk radio days. I'm interviewing some author. I forget. And it, it's not a heavy book. It was some lighter book. And I asked him a question, and he started to answer. And that's all of a sudden he went. <gasps> I keeled over. No, massive heart attack. Uh, on the air live, we went to a commercial break. Oh, we called nine one one. The EMTs come in, put them on a stretcher, take them out. And so Tom Bergeron, you know Tom Bergeron, yes, yes, he, of course. he was working at BC back then. Oh. And I don't know why he was still there, but he was working late. And he came running in when he saw the commotion. He turns to me and he goes. What did you ask the guy? <laughs> Tom Bergeron is funny. Hey, okay, did the guy? Did the person live? He did live. Oh, thank, okay, thank God. goodness. This story would have taken a really dark and turn. It would have felt terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wouldn't oh, be the first person to get very anxious being interviewed by John Keller. Yes, yeah, right. Yeah. Oh my Not God. that anxious. Hi, everybody. Welcome into Season 2, Episode 9 of Studio BZ. I'm Paula Evan here alongside... John Keller. And... Liam Martin in Titletown. That's That's where we're recording right now. World Series champs again. Quick shout-out, Red Sox. And then we can move on from that. Can't we do better than Titletown? It's like (laughs) something... Well, I like saying City of Champions because, frankly, I like stealing that from Philadelphia (laughs) given what happened in the Super Bowl. So let's go City of Champions. Why don't we just go back to the old nickname of Boston, which is the hub of the universe. Hub of the universe. There you go. Well, sports hub for sure of the universe right now. Exactly. (laughs) The Athens of America. Although Mm. at this point, we're more like Rome. Yeah. (laughs) On our parades. I don't know that you want to be compared to Athens that much anymore. But yeah, Rome. Rome. (laughs) Did you see... What is this you're pointing out to I have seen this, and it's obnoxious. In New York City, in the subway, there's a poster that says, Keep NYC Trash Free. Okay. And it is a picture with a circle slash through it of a Patriots fan wearing a Red Sox cap. Oh. Oh, with the Sam Adams beer. I'm holding a Sam Adams reversed beer. like a yes. Bostonian. <laughs> yeah. You know, I actually love this because it yeah. reflects how the tables have turned. It, you know what? You're right about that. Oh, now they're tra- trash talking us exactly. in a pathetic way like this. When they and always we, acted as though we were so beneath them. Because they hate us because they ain't us. And right? we are living rent free in everyone in New York City's head right now. Not to mention L.A. Not to mention LA. Okay, so on to the stuff so on that to stuff really that matters we've got here in the podcast. We have a new poll out with some very interesting insights on mm-hmm. Governor Baker, his race, and Elizabeth Warren. So John Keller's talking to the pollster about that. Yeah, one of the best pollsters in the city, and some insights not just on what's going to happen locally, but also on the outcome of next mm. Tuesday's national midterms. Liam and I did a really interesting uh, interview with a former neo-Nazi uh, who talks about the rise of the far right online and how to fight hate groups. And it seems never has that conversation been more relevant than today, given the events of the last week or so. Harvard is getting sued for discrimination by Asian Americans. So what's really going on? What is this case really about? We're talking with Paul Revel, the former education secretary, about that. And then there's a Jonathan Case special, <laughs> our, our erstwhile producer, about a movie shooting around town and whether or not we like... I'm going to leave it to him, but it, right. it's, it, it raises a question that every Bostonian should want to address. Ooh, quite the tease. Well, here we are now within a week of the big day, Election Ooh. Day, the national story, of course, dominating mainly because the local races here, governor, U.S. Senate, some interesting ballot questions. 
don't appear to be that close, according to a new poll from the Suffolk University uh, Political Polling Center. Dave Paleologos, the director of that center, uh, talked with us at some length about his latest poll in the Boston Globe. And um, it does have some intriguing insights into the near and long-term future of Senator Elizabeth Warren. I know we've all been talking quite a bit about her. Mm. Do you think, and then we can jump into the conversation with Dave, do you think there's, I know I've asked this before, that any chance that Elizabeth Warren somehow loses this race? Or do the numbers at this point say a week out, she's fine? That's what the numbers say. Um, And to be honest, no, I think it's extremely unlikely, although you never say never, okay? Mm-hmm. I Again, as I've said before, I thought that uh, Donald Trump was sure. not going to make it, and we know that I was dead wrong on that. So, uh, ha- But there's a lot of interesting insight into this poll, into uh, where Warren goes from there. And also interesting in terms of the makeup of her support and her detractors here within Massachusetts. So let's get more from pollster Dave Paleologos. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. So, David, your latest poll for the Boston Globe suggests that Governor Charlie Baker could be within reach of what has been in my lifetime the high watermark for a statewide Republican candidate, Bill Weld's 70 percent of the vote as he was reelected in 1994. That that would be quite an amazing result in this day and age, would it not? It absolutely would, considering the fact that 11 percent of registered voters in Massachusetts are registered Republican. And so here we are with a a poll result showing that two-thirds of voters are planning to vote for Charlie Baker, 65% to 26% uh, for uh, Democrat Jay Gonzalez. And you're absolutely right. That's the magic number, 70%. I mean, he's got a 73% favorability, and he has a 73% job approval. So he's right right within the margin of error of uh, breaking that record. Between your polling and your own expert observations of the last four years, how's he doing it? It looks like from the polling, it's the fact that he's not disliked by any major category. So, you know, if you look at Democrats, he's, he's splitting out Democrats. He's winning by wide margins among registered Republicans, uh, wide margins among registered independents. So, or what we call an enrolled voter. So he doesn't have any demographics where he's losing badly. Uh, Once upon a time, going back a few years ago, Massachusetts Democrats appeared to think uh, that they could hang the uh, tremendous unpopularity of the Trump administration around Charlie Baker's neck. And, you know, we mentioned Bill Weld off the top here after running up 70 percent of the vote in his re-election as governor in 94. He challenged John Kerry for the Senate seat in 96. The Democrats hung Newt Gingrich uh, around Weld's neck, and uh, Kerry beat him handily. Why isn't that working again this time? Because the polling, not this particular, this last poll, but, you know, our prior polling 
shows that people do not see Charlie Baker as a pro-Trump Republican. They see him as an anti-Trump Republican, which really plays well with Massachusetts voters because they view Donald Trump unfavorably, 67% do. And so, um, you know, the, the, the idea that you can link Charlie Baker to Donald Trump doesn't, doesn't, uh, flush out with voters. They don't see it that way. As a matter of fact, it works to his benefit that people perceive him to be an anti-Trump Republican. You know, we've interviewed Jay Gonzalez, the Democratic challenger here on the Studio BZ podcast. I've had him on TV. Uh, he's a, He's a nice guy. He's a smart guy. He's worked hard, hasn't gotten much in the way of financial support from his own party. Is there anything he could have done to make this more of a race? I don't think so. I think, you know, he needed to match Charlie Baker and buy name recognition. You know, here we are a week to go. 34% of likely midterm voters are saying never heard of him. And another 27% have heard his name but could not form an opinion, either positively or negatively. So, you know, his ratio of favorable to unfavorable isn't bad. It's two to one. It's 27 to 13, favorable to unfavorable. But the lion's share of voters either have never heard of him or can't form an opinion. All right, let's take a look at the U.S. Senate race where uh, Elizabeth Warren has a comfortable lead, not a Baker-esque lead by any means, but uh, uh, seems to be on a glide path to re-election over her Republican challenger, Jeff Deal. Uh, one thing that caught my eye in your poll for The Globe, David, is the, uh, you polled on the question of the release of her DNA results. And uh, men uh, seemed to be split over whether they were persuaded by that. Uh, but women overwhelmingly appear to be rallying around uh, Senator Warren, uh, something that hasn't shown up in national polling on that issue. Yeah, that's absolutely true, you know, and there's a, there's, there's a gender problem in her numbers, not only on that, that DNA question, you know, I mean, you know, full disclosure, I mean, this is a question that we asked in two parts, you know, should she have taken the test? Voters were split on that, 43-42, and, and secondly, did the test put to rest questions about our Native American ancestry. And of course, men were split on that. They weren't convinced uh, that it did put to rest, and some said that it raised questions about our Native American ancestry. Women were convinced that the DNA test did what it was intended to do, which is to put to rest by about a 30-point margin versus a split among men. And by the way, on the ballot test question, head-to-head -head against Deal, the Republican, you know, men were split 45-45. 45% of men was, were voting deal, 45 for, for Warren, but she had about a 40-point lead among women in that ballot test question. So you can see a thread here. And, you know, uh, you know, if Warren is looking elsewhere after the election next Tuesday, she needs to figure out the gender piece because, in, you know, in Massachusetts it was clear-cut. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever seen a gender gap that big. Let's talk about Warren's future. I know you're not a political consultant, uh, but you've certainly been around politics a long time. If, if you were counseling Senator Warren based on the numbers you're seeing, uh, what would you tell her about being a presidential candidate in two years? 
Well, it's amazing because Massachusetts voters are basically saying that she should not run. Yeah. 68%. And, and, uh, you know, and that's obviously the haters, the people who don't like her anyway, Republicans, conservative independents, and other independents, but also people who do like her and who are voting for her and think she has done a good job as a senator and will vote to reelect her. They're saying no. They're saying do not run for president. I mean, I, I, I see what the path the path that she sees uh, in that you know in our New Hampshire poll a few months ago we put you know many of the major candidates in a list and and asked New Hampshire voters to pick uh, one of them and then we added in Elizabeth Warren and she cleared the field mm-hmm. uh, you know she she cleared the field ahead of Joe Biden and Sanders and and everybody. So I think when you see numbers like that in an early state, that tends to impact your decision. You know, uh, if you, you know, she obviously feels the calling. I mean, she's, you know, deal has said point blank in the debates, you know, as, as well as anybody that, you know, you're running for president. And, you know, um, that's that's a, that's something that you know she's 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 got to manage. And David, before we let you go, I know you're super busy, but uh, maybe we should take a step back and look at the end game here, the final days before the midterm voting. Uh, President Trump has doubled down on some of his classic hits as his closing gambits here most notably demonizing refugees and immigrants between the uh, the horror stories he's raising about the caravan uh, down in, in uh, South America and Mexico uh, and uh, now most recently his talk about doing away with the uh, the birthright, uh, citizenship as a birthright uh, for babies born on American soil. Uh, based on your polling, is are these smart moves by President Trump, or are they potentially disastrous? I can't speak to the long-term impact, but the the decision to launch those issues, you know, within the last day or two, are timely. They're timely because he's appealing to conservative voters in West Virginia, and. Uh, many of these other red states, conservative states, Indiana, pieces of Florida, Texas, and those issues play well to his base. And he needs an extra five or eight or 10% of registered Republicans in those states who are going to sit out the midterms to go out and vote or independents in those states to get out and vote. Long term, I don't know whether or not he drops it after the election or if he, and he's just using it for a ploy. But those are the issues that he his polling has told him works best to get the kind of intensity of voting that he needs next Tuesday. And if you're a Democrat, based on our polling, you want to be talking about health care, which is a big a, a big and a good issue for Democrats in general. And you want to talk about gun control. Uh, moments ago, we released a Florida poll. And uh, one of the interesting findings was that an overwhelming amount of Florida midterm voters want to see the, gov- the next governor ban semi-automatic weapons like the AR-15. As a matter of fact, 43% of gun-owning households in Florida want to see those weapons banned. So those are good issues for Democrats. Trump is already hitting the good issues for Republicans. We'll see who turns out in a week. Just to put a period on it, for the casual listener, 
listening to our podcast here, hearing us talk about these poll numbers and gambits and strategies, uh, can you blame them for feeling like the cynicism of our politics is off the charts? I can't blame them, and it and it shows up in the people who don't vote. You know, part of the work that I do at Suffolk University uh, in depth, and this is probably a topic for another podcast, is to talk about the large percentage of eligible people, voter-eligible population who do not vote, and that number is going to be significant. In this election, you could have 160 million people who are eligible to vote who won't vote, and only 80 million people who will vote, both Democrats and Republicans at the top of their respective tickets. That number speaks volumes to me as a statistician, and it reflects the kind of apathy and anger that people are experiencing and, and, and saying to us uh, by not voting that they've given up on the system and that they don't trust both political parties. The Suffolk University Political Research Center consistently produces some of the most accurate and respected polls in the business. David Paleologos is its director. David, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Liam and I did a really fascinating interview, but we should say before the events in Pittsburgh mm. with Christian Picciolini, a former white nationalist who now talks about his past and uh, he really wants to point out to people how dangerous things are online right now. Well, and the interview is now set against the backdrop. We didn't realize this was going to happen of three violent crimes within the past week committed by white nationalists. You had the shooting at a grocery store in Kentucky of two black people. The man had allegedly tried to get into a black church before shooting up the Kroger we had, of course, the shooting this weekend at the synagogue in Pittsburgh by a white nationalist and the pipe bomber who had told some of his co-workers allegedly that he was a white nationalist and that he believed that the, the black race and Jews should not exist anymore. And this is all also against a very recent and large uptick in hate crimes in America. In fact, there's a new study out in the nation's 10 largest cities. Hate crimes have increased by 12% just last year. We've also had FBI hate crime statistics since 2016 showing a rise in hate crimes in America. And so we talked with Christian Picciolini about how he became involved in this movement at just 14 years old and what he makes of this recent rise in hate crimes in America. Well, our guest today joined a neo-Nazi group at 14 years old, started a white power rock band, and eventually became the leader of a violent white supremacy group before he was even old enough to vote. Christian Picciolini has since left the movement and in fact now tries to pull others out of it. He has a book out, White American Youth, My Descent into America's Most Violent Hate Group. And in fact, he's going to be speaking November 4th in Boston at the Windsor School in front of the Combined Jewish Philanthropies. You can find out more about that at cjp.org. Well, Christian, thanks so much for joining us. I, I want to dive right into it. At 14 years old, tell me if I have this correct, you encountered a neo-Nazi skinhead named Clark Martell. Tell us about that encounter. Thanks, Liam. Uh, it, you know, it was uh, 1987 and I was 14 years old and I was standing in an alley after, you know, going through a, a youth where I felt very marginalized and was acting out because I felt abandoned. 
Uh, and uh, I was smoking a joint in an alley one day and, and this guy came up to me who was twice my age. He pulled the joint out of my mouth and he looked me in the eyes and he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. And I, you know, if, I, if I'm being honest, I didn't know what a, a communist was or if I'd met a Jewish person or if, even what the word docile meant at the time. Mm. Um, but uh, it turned out that Clark Martell was America's first neo-Nazi skinhead leader. And this was the southwest side of Chicago uh, in 1987. Uh, and he had brought the movement over, the skinhead movement over from uh, England um, but also had, you know, uh, attached himself to, you know, far right politics and, and things like that. Uh, so the group that I joined was America's first neo-Nazi skinhead group. Yeah. And Christian, you said you felt abandoned at 14. Just briefly, what was your home life like as a child? And do you think that what you responded to was his sort of strength and aggression in approaching you that way with what seemed like such a definitive answer? about life. Why did you feel so vulnerable? That's, that's a really great point, Paul, uh, because I, I, you know, I wasn't ideological. I grew up in a very, you know, normal, uh, household. Uh, you know, my parents were Italian immigrants who came to the U S in the sixties. And, and when they came, they were the victims of prejudice. Racism wasn't something I was raised with. Um, mm. uh, and they loved me and I was surrounded by a lot of love, but because my parents were immigrants, they had to work uh, at a, you know, trying to run a small business seven days a week, 14 or 15 hours a day. And I never saw them. What do they do? Uh, they had a small beauty shop on the, on the South side of Chicago. Uh, mm. And, um, you know, they, I didn't see it then, uh, you know, you're a kid and, and I wondered what I had done to push them away. I wasn't vulnerable or didn't even know how to ask or to share my, you know, frustration or confusion. So I just got angrier and angrier and felt abandoned and blamed them. And, uh, you know, he, this man in the alley appealed to, to my vulnerabilities. He knew cause he was a recruiter. He knew exactly what was bothering me. So he offered me the things that I was looking for an identity, a community and a purpose. And you're 14 years old at this point. You join this group. Yeah. What was that experience like at 14 years old? What would the, what would you guys do? It was exciting at 14 years old. We would, you know, listen to loud music that had racist lyrics. We would, you know, drink beer. We would, uh, you know, talk about uh, politics, even though I had no idea what they were talking about. You know, at first I didn't know anything about politics. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just the camaraderie was great. It was, and then there was violence, of course. There were street fights. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, while you do it, that it's destructive. Uh, you know, I wasn't raised that way. So every day I had doubts. Every time I committed an act of violence, I felt guilt. Um, but I, it was the price of admission. You had to continue to do it. Not that anybody was forcing you, but it was just that was the culture. Uh, and you had to continue to do it to stay uh, accepted, to stay respected. And in fact, you eventually became the leader of this group when you were 17. Is that how old you were? And how did that happen? Yeah, I was barely 17 uh, when I uh, took over the the leadership of the Chicago area skinheads, which was that first skinhead, uh, neo-Nazi skinhead group in America. When the, the man who recruited me, Clark Martell, uh, had gone to prison for a series of violent crimes, uh, one of which was uh, going to a female skinhead's house who was part of our group. 
And because they had, uh, many of the older leaders had seen her at a bus stop with a black man, they went to her apartment and they beat her um, and they pistol whipped her, but uh, not before leaving uh, and painting a swastika on her wall with her own blood. Uh, and he was arrested for that, and many other people were arrested for that, thankfully. Uh, and unfortunately for me, I was one of the last uh, guys standing who knew how to recruit, who knew the propaganda, and I took over. Yeah. And you've been honest about the fact that you yourself committed a lot of acts of violence and that that's painful for you now. But is there yeah. any particular instance in which you participated that stays with you? I think they've all stayed with me. I don't know that I've forgotten any of them. Um, but, uh, you know, one in, in particular, I think, was a, a bit of a turning point for me. Uh, I want to say it was, you know, maybe 92, uh, 1992. And it was late one uh, night on a weekend, and I had been out drinking with a bunch of other skinheads, and we were getting rowdy. And we walked into a McDonald's restaurant. Uh, after midnight and, and there were some black teenagers uh, in there and, and I got very loud and, and aggressive and, and chased them out. And as they were running across the street, we were chasing after them. Uh, one of the, the black teens pulled out uh, a pistol and started firing at us and uh, the gun jammed, uh, didn't hit anybody. And uh, we, we caught that individual and we beat him very, very badly. Uh, and I remember uh, that being one of the instances, one of the first instances uh, where not only I felt guilt, but uh, I felt empathy for this person as I was hurting him. I looked into his eyes and, and we connected and I thought for a moment, you know, this could be my brother. This could be you know, somebody that I love. And, and what I'm doing right now has an impact even further than this person. It's going to affect other people. Mm. And um you know, I think I think that that was the last time I committed an act of violence. Um, and, you know, that was a long time ago, but um, it, it stayed with me and uh, I never forgot that. How long was it after that that you relinquished your role as the leader of this group and said, I'm, I'm out of this? It was probably another two and a half to three years after that, mm. uh, because even though I, you know, I, I always questioned the ideology, I always questioned my violence and, and what I was doing. Um, but the last couple of years where internally I had completely denounced it, it was very difficult to break away because it was the only family that I knew. It was the only community and, and identity that I'd ever had in my life. And, and that kept me uh, attached, even though ideologically I had become disengaged and I just kind of kept it to myself. But uh, there was a clean break for me. I had ha I had opened a record store when I was 22 years old um, to support my family, and and I was selling racist music in in the record store that I was importing from Europe. Um, and you know, largely before the consumer internet, so people were not buying MP3s and and things like that. So they were coming in from all over the country to to buy this racist music in my small record shop, and it became 75% of my revenue. But it was also at that store, because I was selling other music like punk uh, and hip hop and heavy metal that I started to, for the first time in my life, meet and have meaningful interactions with the people I thought I hated. Mm. Um, you know, it was there that I, that I met, you know, and, and talked to, to black people and Jewish people and gay people and, um, 
and you know they knew who I was. They knew I was you know really visible at the time. Uh, I'd been doing CNN interviews when I was 17 years old, so mm. I wasn't hiding it. Uh, and they came in, I think, intentionally to to not attack me, but to talk to me. Uh, and it was the compassion that I received from them, the people I least deserved it from, uh, at a time when I least deserved it. That I think was the most powerful transformation point. Was there anything in particular that they said to you? that was effective at getting through to you? They listened. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it, they didn't attack me. They could have. Um, but instead they came in and, and they treated me, even though they despised what I believed in and what I had done, they, they came in and maybe it's because they saw something in me that I didn't even see. I don't know. But it was uh, just the regular conversation that destroyed the demonization that was in my head and replaced it with humanization. I started to feel, you know, that they were, that we had similar similarities that I didn't share with the people that were closest to me. Uh, you know, the way they loved their families and, and the types of things that affected them. And, and when I learned that I couldn't reconcile the prejudice anymore. Um, and, and when I when I learned that, I pulled the music, the racist music from the inventory. And, and because it was 75 percent of my revenue, I had to shut the store down. And it was at that point that I that I walked away from the movement. And by that time, my wife had left me and, and taken the two kids with her. And, you know, I was 22 or 20, going on 23 and, and completely broken again and, and without an identity, community and purpose. And your purpose now is to try to prevent other people from going into this movement or in fact, uh, get them out of the movement. Right. And tell us about that work. You know, it, it's not so much about trying to convince anybody that they're wrong, uh, even though I certainly know that they are and what they believe. It's, it's more about, uh, trying to be a lifeline, uh, for their confusion because I never met one person in the movement who was not confused about what they believed in or, or who, you know, because you can't, it's based on, you know, conspiracy theories and lies and, and, uh, falsehoods. It's a, it's a difficult thing to embrace, uh, if you are a logical or semi-logical person. Mm. So my goal is really to be that lifeline for, for the people who are questioning or for families that might be dealing with somebody who's involved uh, in how to, to talk with them. But what I do essentially is I never argue ideologically with them. I don't debate them or tell them that they're wrong. Uh, instead, I listen and I listen for what I call uh, potholes, those things in life that appear that kind of deviate our path. Uh, if we, you know, if they're obstacles, things like trauma, things like abuse or abandonment for me, um, and I listen for that. I filter out the noise and then I become a pothole filler. I build resilience in people so that they don't need to blame the other for what they think is happening in their life. Uh, and, and then I introduce them to the other and I, and I build those same relationships that, that, you know, affected me so long ago. Uh, and, uh, it works. As you have become more prominent as a voice against hate, we've seen, this become an issue in America. We had Charlottesville last year. Uh, the FBI has reported a spike in hate crimes in 2017. What do you make of that? What do you make of the recent rise? Well, I think what I would make of it is that it was always there uh, and we were either sweeping it under the rug or silent about it um, because I've been seeing it 
and talking about it for 20 years. I think what why we're seeing a resurgence is because of, of the rhetoric uh, and, you know, the attacks and inflammatory language that's coming from the very top. Uh, that's now enabling these these folks who had these ideas to feel more comfortable in saying them and, and executing, you know, uh, their actions based on those ideas. But that said, it is growing. I am seeing, you know, young people uh, joining this like a social movement, like I've never seen another social movement grow before. Uh, it, it's almost as if if you're well adjusted and, and you have access to fill those potholes in your life, you become an advocate for good. And, and if you don't, if you if you have those voids in your life that you haven't filled, somehow your marginalization and because of the Internet and there's so many marginalized people that live on the Internet, they're finding these narratives that are kind of nihilistic against everybody that they think is, has hurt them in the right. past. And Leah mentioned Charlottesville. You've mentioned that the white supremacy movement has tried to go mainstream in a way, and the internet has played a role in that um, in terms of changing their look and terminology to be more appealing. I know in Charlottesville, there was the sort of golf shirt and khaki pants yeah, polo shirts, yeah. look, right, that, that was pre-organized online deliberately. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing in the internet connections among these groups about how they're trying to change the perception of skinheads around the nation? Well, you know, it really goes back 30 years, uh, even 35 years, but 30 years ago when I was involved, uh, we started to recognize that our, we were too extreme for the average American white racist that we wanted to recruit. They were turned off by the swastikas and the shaved heads and the clan hoods and the tattoos and all these things. And we decided that we needed to look more and sound more like the people we wanted to recruit. Um, so we started encouraging people and this wasn't just me, this was a movement wide effort to, you know, to tell people to grow their hair out, uh, to trade in their boots for suits, to get jobs in law enforcement, to go to the military and get training, to become teachers, to, uh, to even, you know, run for politics locally if, if their records were clean. Um, and it was a, a whole movement to, to really blend in, uh, to live, uh, among people that, you know, we could influence with more palatable language that really led to the same, you know, type of extremism uh, and division. Do you see that in the you know, alt right? I do. I mean, it, you know, it's gone from, uh, you know, it's gone from this kind of street thug uh, brown shirt, nineteen thirty three Germany, which was what I was, to the more pseudo intellectual, uh, you know, national socialist of, of you know, the later years of World War Two, uh, and and essentially what they've done is they've taken these terms, uh, you know, uh, based on conspiracy theory of Jewish control, and they've turned it into buzzwords and dog whistles like, uh, you know, globalist, uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, nationalist has taken on certainly a new meaning. Uh, but I can tell you that when white nationalists use that term, they're not just talking about patriotism, they're talking, uh, they're talking about xenophobia, and they're talking about, uh, you know, isolationism and nativism, uh, which is, you know, racist, of course. Um, and, you know, they've even come up with terms like white nationalist and alt-right, uh, you know, those are, those are just more palatable, uh, and more marketing savvy terms that they've mm. come up with to make themselves seem like less of a Nazi or ne- less of a, you know, a racist and white supremacist. What's the best way to combat it? You know, that's a, a complicated question. Uh, you know, I think on all fronts, uh, 
we need to fix institutional and systemic racism, uh, you know, before we can even tackle interpersonal racism. Mm. Um, uh, if one exists, the other will always exist. Uh, but on a more interpersonal level, you know, I think we need, we do need to show compassion to the people that least deserve it because, uh, chances are good. They're the ones who need it the most. And in every instance that I've worked with somebody, that's been the only thing that breaks hate. Uh, and it's hard because I'm not asking, you know, potential victims of, of these people to, to embrace them. Uh, but I'm asking all human beings to just be good to each other because you never know who that person is. Uh, and it doesn't matter what type of extremism we're talking about. Uh, it's the same remedy. And Christian, you're going to be in Boston. Tell us about the event. And is there a way people can come see you talk? <laughs> I am going to be in Boston the day after my birthday on November 4th uh, at um, the Windsor School, uh, speaking with uh, a group uh, for the Combined Jewish Philanthropies. Um, and uh, if they have any questions, you can always check my website, and it's just christianpicciolini.com. Well, Christian Picciolini, thank you so much for talking with us. We really appreciate it. Liam, it's, it was my pleasure. Paul, it was nice to speak with you. Thank you. Harvard is on trial, accused in a lawsuit of discriminating against Asian Americans in its admissions process. The case is underway. The plaintiffs, a group called Students for Fair Admission, claim that Harvard University systemically scores Asians lower on certain traits in order to keep their numbers down. Harvard denies that charge and says that its holistic admissions process is necessary to ensure a diverse student body. So joining us tonight to discuss this is Paul Revel, the former Secretary of Education in Massachusetts and now a professor at Harvard at the Graduate School of Education. Paul, thank you so much for coming in. Pleasure to be here. Based on what you've seen so far in this trial, do you think it's more difficult for Asians to get into Harvard than it is for other groups? Well, I haven't, you know, I haven't done a, a thorough review of the evidence in the case, but I do think that the, you know, the conversation around this case revolves around two points. One is um, whether or not, as you said in your opener, uh, Asian students are being discriminated against, and the plaintiffs allege this is the case. They've been presenting some facts, and the university alleges uh, the university defends itself and says this is not the case, and it's been shown on several occasions not to be true. This gets in, however, to the larger discussion of affirmative action. This really isn't a case about affirmative action. This is a case about discrimination. Mm -hmm. right. Because this is not the government, right, discriminating no. or making these decisions. Harvard is a private institution and right. Right. can do whatever it wants, right? So we should spell out for people that Harvard rates applicants on four categories. Academics, extracurricular activities, sports, and personal qualities. And these Asian American students involved in the suit claim that Harvard rates them low on personality traits. Mm. And what do you make of that claim? Um, from what we understand, this happens in the very early rounds of the discussion about students. What about that point in the lawsuit? Well, I mean, first of all, it should be a matter of fact. In other words, they, through discovery, we can determine whether or not that, that is the case. That's the plaintiffs say that, that it is, that, yeah. that Asian yeah. students are graded lower on personality. Now, how much weight this has in the admissions process, that's the other question. I mean, some people think 
admission to a university ought to be a kind of an academic horse race and whoever mm -hmm. scores first mm -hmm. gets in based on purely academic performance and scores. But of course, uh, this, has not been the, this has not been the case historically. We've made all kinds of exceptions for athletes, for geographic diversity, mm -hmm. for sure. alumni, for donors or children of donors and things of this nature. So there have been a lot of exceptions. And in 1978, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that race could be considered as one of the factors in composing a diverse student body. Mm. Harvard could actually fill its class with uh, valedictorians. Uh, you know, they have 1,600 places. You could fill them with valedictorians from the 40,000-plus people who apply. So it isn't just a question of who's the, who has the top scores. Once you get above a certain level of performance, then we know everybody can do the work. And so the question is, now we have all these people above the level of those who can do the work. How do you break it down and build a class that's like a mosaic that represents something of what the nation looks like so that our students are prepared to be leaders in society in the future. And in fact, Harvard says it does take race into account in its admissions, but that it can only add to your overall score. When you get your overall score as an applicant, it can add if uh, you are of a certain race. And they argue they have an interest in keeping the student body diverse. Do you agree with that? I, I do agree with that. I think that's, that's true not only in the interest of the university in terms of our classes, our student body, the culture on campus, making it as rich and diverse as we possibly can, mm -hmm. making it reflect the society that our students will go out and work and live in, uh, making it the kind of place where they'll have experience with the sort of people who they'll be called upon to lead as leaders in the future. So I think all that is really important. I think it's relevant and I think it ought to be within, as long as you know that students can do the work academically, mm -hmm. then we ought to be able to put together a student body that is reflective of the society right. as a whole. At this point, the school has uh, a percentage of 20% uh, of Asian students mm -hmm. yes. comprise the student body. What happens if Harvard loses this lawsuit? Well, my understanding, and again, the, the, the models that I've seen say that the, the Asian American enrollment would increase by maybe 2 or 3%. Hmm. Uh, the white enrollment would increase by by a factor four times larger, eight or nine percent, and you'd see the enrollment of African Americans and Hispanics go down. So it would be arguably a much less diverse place if the plaintiffs prevail in this case. And I think, frankly, the plaintiffs appear to be motivated more by their desire to have affirmative action challenged than they are actually about the particular discrimination charge uh, against Asian And in fact, the, the attorney who brought this case is Edward Bloom. He is right. known as being an advocate nationally against affirmative action. And his argument in this case is that Harvard should not be allowed to consider race at all in its admissions process. But the Supreme Court has already ruled on that. Harvard is allowed, as you, as you, as you put it, to sure. con consider that as one factor among others. So the real question here is, uh, is there unfair discrimination against Asian American mm -hmm. students? And that should not be tolerable. Paul Revel, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Of course, as we said, the lawsuit is ongoing. We will bring you the decision uh, when it comes in. But interesting case. Good talking with you. Each day, hundreds of thousands of people pour into the one square mile of downtown. Most people, I think, know or are familiar with the Spencer novels. Mm -hmm. The late Robert B. Parker. Can I say I'm not familiar at all? Oh, will you give oh, me some okay. background? Well, you know why it became such a household thing was because of the television show in the 80s with Robert Urich. Yeah. Starring uh, a Spencer. So the Spencer novels became more of a well-known thing around Robert the Robert B. Parker was a Northeastern University adjunct English teacher uh, who moonlighted as a writer. 
and he wrote a novel about a Bostonian detective, a private eye named Spencer. Okay. Uh, who was different from most, if not all, other private eyes in literature before then. He was uh, a tough guy who could mix it up with a fist or a gun as needed, uh, but also a very erudite guy Hmm. who uh, appreciated the arts and uh, were cooked, was a little bit of a gourmet cook. Uh, And he created what became an extremely popular series of mystery novels based around Spencer, then got made into a TV series. And now they're making a movie of, I believe it might be one of his final novels, might even be one that he left unfinished when he passed away. A Spencer novel? A few years ago. It's it's actually not. It's it's by um, another writer who basically took the character and... It's authorized okay. by the by uh, Robert Parker. But so Wait, he, it wasn't like he partially wrote no, it. It I was don't, I, let, okay. I'll, I'll double check that. Did the I publishing don't. house let yeah. somebody else continue That's the Spencer exactly novels? What, yeah, that his, happens. His, his widow actually. Yeah. Gave so, the rights to so they're making a movie of this, and it's shooting around the Boston area right now, uh, starring Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> so the question is: Is that a good casting? Uh, are we indifferent to it or is it revolting? Okay, that's what we were getting around to was, is Mark Wahlberg yeah. believable as this Spencer character? And I guess Mark Wahlberg is a polarizing figure. Apparently, I didn't yes. really realize well, that. Well, there's the whole history of the terrible assault in the 1980s, I believe, where he beat someone to within inches of their life. A Vietnamese-American man. Yes. Yeah. And, and so, then turned his life around and became a star. But And has since begged for forgiveness for this, but also wanted the crime removed from his record, if yes, I'm not mistaken. Well, yes, he sought to have it removed, and, um, and more that broadly, grudged it all up again. There are apparently a number of Bostonians who object to his, maybe this is an example of cultural appropriation, of his branding, which is very much although not totally, centered on his image as sort of the quintessential Bostonian. Yes, and yes. being the hero. The tough the guy films. with the heart of gold. Well, I think it's <laughs> become know. that thing where, poor Boston, we have this sort of romance with Hollywood, but we never quite make it. And Matt and Ben were the the real stars once they won their Oscars. Well, isn't Wahlberg one of the but, biggest box office well, yes, draws? But the fact that it's Matt, Ben, and Mark Wahlberg, and that's about it. I think <laughs> Mark Wahlberg has got to be one of the, of I think he's the highest paid actor in the world. Oh, yeah. In, he churns them out. Some years, some other years it's Dwayne Johnson, but Mark Wahlberg right. several of the past years has been. And he's guy. had a lot of success in his films but, uh, with Will, Fer- Will Ferrell, like the yes, other guys. Daddy's, Daddy's Home, whatever home. that might be. They're, they're pretty funny I together. will say, though, yeah, if if I've, I've not read the Spencer novels, so I can't speak with a whole lot of knowledge about the character, but if he's supposed to be erudite, I don't know <laughs> that that's the best casting. Well, we'll Marky see. Mark? Marky Mark. Hey, I, maybe he's become a renaissance. I guess we'll see if he can pull it off. <laughs> I'll tell you, I knew Bob Parker. Uh, I wouldn't call him a close friend, but he was a casual friend of mine mm-hmm. um, and was with him on many occasions. And he had the most wonderful Boston-y sense of humor. 
sort of sarcastic and ironic. Mm. In fact, a, a good example of this, one time just a few days before the 2004 presidential election, Kerry versus Bush, mm. I ran into Bob, who was shopping for his latest gourmet meal at the Whole Foods over on uh, uh, Brook Parkway in Cambridge. <laughs> and we're chatting, and I said, hey, Bob, uh, we had a sort of a shared uh, skepticism of John Kerry just from proximity with him. Okay, And I said, so, Bob, who do you like uh, on election day, Bush or Kerry? So he whips around his left shoulder, whips around looking around his right shoulder like he's, you know, petrified that someone might overhear <laughs> what he's about to say. And he kind of leaned in and says, I kind of like W. Oh. <laughs> And it just, you know, that was his way of commenting on our surroundings. But um, I think he might yeah. get a kick out of it. I mean, yeah. we'll see if Wahlberg well, can deliver. But Robert, he would like the idea of the movie making money absolutely. if he were going to benefit from it. Robert Urich was a great Spencer, if you remember. And he remember he'd been Dan Tana on Vegas. Yeah. Mm. And then he moved here. And every time they'd be shooting, he'd live nearby. I think he lived in Weston in the time when they <laughs> shot the. And he, he was very popular. But it fizzled after a couple of seasons. So, hey, maybe Mark Wahlberg can infuse new See, life cor- into Spencer. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I kind of remember Urich as, as being a disappointing Spencer. In the same <laughs> well, way that I Roger, had not read the books. Well, Roger Moore didn't cut it as Bond because in the Roger Moore Bond movies, he's always getting smacked around <laughs> and, you know, getting caught. Right. Well, Sean Connery never right. no. got caught, or if, if he did, it was only temporary. Pierce Brosnan's whole thing was that his hair would never move, right? He would <laughs> never run out of place. He was a little bit And he would still look like perfect him. afterwards. But it just seemed to me that Yurik always was getting the worst of it, they, and, and Spencer well, never did. It was in the era where Hollywood didn't get Boston yet. Right. It was a little right. too generic. I do right. want to say, exactly. so I'm just looking through some of Mark Wahlberg's movies, and there are some performances that were that were somewhat nuanced. That called for some nuance. The mm-hmm. Fighter. Mm-hmm. He was, was very good, good in yeah. The Fighter. Good he was movie. good. Um, the Departed. Spencer is actually from Wyoming, so they they, they didn't need to hire someone from Boston. Oh. The character. The originally, he's originally from Wyoming. From Wyoming. Oh. From Wyoming. Really? Or is that just for this film? No, no. The, for the, this story. From the novels. Huh. In the novels. Is he a transplant Spencer, to Boston? Yeah, Spencer grew up in Laramie, How Wyoming. How interesting. So if Wahlberg adopts a Boston accent, it would be, it would be it's inaccurate. inaccurate. Yeah, yeah. So real quickly, the, the moment yeah. that movie comes out, if he has a Boston accent, I am tweeting all about how it's totally inaccurate. <laughs> Our newscasters are editors all work as an efficient, well-coordinated fact-finding team. All right. We have covered a lot of ground. That was a lot. Yeah. This week. And there's a ton that we didn't even, we're not even able to put on the air, frankly. <laughs> I know. There's always a little section that we have to hold back. <laughs> we have to we hold really it back. Can't Usually put on the air. initiated by John. For reasons of good taste, <laughs> if nothing else. Um, give us a rating and review. Subscribe yeah. and share, of course. Our Twitter is at Studio BZ Pod. I'm at Paula Evan WBZ. And it is so important that you give the rating and review because it, then we know. We it know moves, what, yeah. what people think. Yeah. And uh, yes, I am at Liam WBZ. And tell a friend. Come on. Yes. You got a long commute. You're out jogging walking in the, the cold, walking the dog. You need something interesting to listen to. Spread the word. You can uh, reach me at my handle on Twitter is at Keller at Large. Excellent. Shall we? We'll be seeing you. <laughs> I almost forgot that. I, know, I, know. No. I, I could hear it. I could hear it not there in your head. <laughs>